Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 45 on the Old Testament, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today covers Ezra and Nehemiah, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online. If you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found at audible.com. Today we cover chapters 28 and 29, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and Judah awaits the Messiah. For those following the text, this lecture may seem a little out of order as we jumped over chapters 26 and 27, but those two chapters will be reviewed in the next lesson when Dr. Skousen makes his final review for his Old Testament class. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy. It looks as though the uh, seductive uh, sunshine has lured away a good percent of our class. Will you turn in your book, if you happen to have it with you, to page 403? On that page, or one very close to it, I gave you a reference of Journal of Discourses to write in ink. Did you put it in there anywhere? Yeah, it's 270. Somebody called to my attention that I'd said 170, so I could, uh, and I use it all the time, and uh, so it's 270. Will you put that down? I'm going to read it to you so you'll be sure that uh, you heard it. It's uh, Journal of Discourses, Volume 1, page 270. It's on, I have mine on 403. Now, the doctrine here is one of the lost doctrines of the church, lost only by neglect. And should you teach it in the in sacrament meeting, half the congregation would rise up and protest, new doctrine, new doctrine. It's just a very old, neglected doctrine. This is the doctrine on the power of the priesthood and the entire talk by President Young that is quoted on the page uh, in connection with the citation I gave you is his statement that to gain the riches of eternal life means to be able to speak and have the intelligences of the universe obey you as they do the Father and his Son. That's what it means to have the riches of eternal life. You can organize planets, you can organize galaxies, you can make bread out of dirt. You can make wine out of water. You don't need wine, okay. Make um, Hawaiian punch out of water. <laughs> now the doctrine is simply this. We've discussed it several times, that anyone like Nephi II, Elijah or Elisha, who, are, who have been given power over the elements, as God said, as Je Jehovah said to Nephi II, in the presence of all my angels, who are they? Who are the angels? Members of the priesthood beyond the veil. In the presence of all my priesthood beyond the veil, I declare that if Nephi shall say it, it shall be done. And then he said to Nephi, I give you this power because I know you'll never use it until I tell you to. Okay? Now this is power to command the elements and say to a mountain, move and cast thyself over on this city, and it'll do it. 
and the waves will obey, and the wind will obey. And Jacob said, even the trees will obey us. What they had them do, I don't imagine, unless it was to drop all their fruit or something, but um, he said, even the trees obey us. Now, actually, you have intelligence in matter exactly like your intelligence, but of a lower order. And therefore, there isn't anything in existence but what is made out of this very simple ingredient. Those are the two building blocks of the universe, element and intelligence. As Brigham Young says, element is capacity to receive intelligence, and then when you command the intelligence, it pulls the matter with it, the element with it. And you can organize it into water, H2O, or you can organize it into any of the other elements. And you can combine them in any way that you wish. And you can have it combined in organic matter or inorganic matter, so-called. All right. Once you understand that lost doctrine of the priesthood, this is why Brigham Young says the priesthood is the power of God in action in the universe. You see things happening, that's God speaking and they obeying. So listen to Brigham Young now for about three paragraphs. I will now take notice of that character who exhibited the power of true riches on the earth, though he himself was in a state of abject poverty to all human appearances. He was made poor that we might be made rich, and he descended below all things that he might ascend above all things. When the only begotten Son of God was upon the earth, he understood the nature of these elements, how they were brought together to make this world and all things that are thereon, for he helped to make them. He had the power of organizing what we would call in a miraculous manner. That which to him was no miracle is called miraculous by the inhabitants of the earth. On one occasion he commanded a sufficient amount of bread to be formed to feed his disciples and the multitude, 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another. It was in the air. That bread was in the air. It was in the water and the earth upon which we walk. He, unperceived by his disciples and the multitude, spoke to these native elements, brought them forth as bread. He had the power. We have not that power, but are under the necessity of producing bread according to a systematic plan. We are obliged to till the ground, sow the wheat, in order to obtain more wheat. But when we possess the true riches, meaning of the priesthood, we shall be able to call forth the bread from the native elements like Jesus Christ did himself. Everything that is good for man is there in the elements. Jesus said to his disciples, make the multitude sit down and divide them into companies and take this bread and break it and distribute it among them. They did not know but that it was the few loaves and fishes that fed the whole of the multitude as they ate. The truth is he called forth bread from the native elements. Is that a mystery to you? Did you never think of that before? How do you suppose he fed them? He did not feed them upon nothing. They ate bread and fish substantial bread and fish until they were satisfied. Now this the Savior called from the surrounding elements. He was quite capable of doing it because he had the keys and power of the true riches of the priesthood. And if any man possesses them, he's able to do the same both in this life and in eternity. As the, if they become a permanent part of our bodies. Mm -hmm. the, I can only tell you what the brethren taught. And that is that, and it's right in these same, some of these same sermons, that a son of perdition loses the privilege of retaining his body. It was resurrected for him 
but it goes it disintegrates and goes back to the native resurrected elements from which it came it never can die in that it's separated into gross and spirit matter again but it does disintegrate that's right well you see when a resurrected body there aren't two bodies they become one substance right okay now they've only got one body and it's a resurrected body and it's element and spirit combined into a single element isn't it you follow that okay now Alma says or Mamulek says they never can be separated again into spirit and gross matter they've been combined in a resurrected body never to die again meaning separate again and so when that son of perdition is deprived of that body it ceases to be a body and it goes back to the resurrected planet to which it belongs you follow that well element and it's organized it's organized and uh, element it's intelligence and element combined it just it disintegrates into its particles stops being a body just becomes part of a planet to which it belongs no it's really dissolved because the intelligence and element re uh, remain combined the body is disorganized you could say that yeah but not the element and the intelligence they remain combined yes no it's reserved for those that God can trust with it yes you're you're right it seems to be reserved to Godhead Godhood celestial maybe so we'll talk about it when we get there and is cast out he remains an entity but he loses his embodiment so he loses his identity as a person he's not a person anymore he's an essence of intelligence that's no different than intelligence for any other matter he's not a person anymore he's an identity and he's an individual but he's not a human being Brigham Young talks about that he says you your personality as a person will be annihilated that as this you know there, there goes John Brown it won't be John Brown anymore there'll be an essence of intelligence out there you call it something else not a person anymore it's returned down to the level of intelligences when it's cast out is that what you mean you wouldn't say that's John Brown anymore hasn't got a spirit and hasn't got a body it's just a little swish and that little swish might come up when we're scooped up making another planet and say I'm Lucifer brother Scouse and I've learned my lesson give me another chance I say you're too smart you 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 fool too many people I'm not that smart I couldn't possibly take a chance on you then I wouldn't what Brigham Young is saying that you you lose your identity as a, as a person not as an entity you are still something you're a little intelligence but you're not a son of God anymore you've lost all that yes until the time of the second death they're both uh, Cain is resurrected you see and the moment that he's resurrected even though it's to no glory he rules over Satan who has no body Joseph Smith says and that they will remain in that state together until the second death takes over and Lucifer loses his spirit body and Cain loses his resurrected body then they're just cast back out into the chaos of outer darkness and the early brethren said but then they'd get returned wouldn't they they'd get scooped up again and the Lord immediately said don't ever teach that doctrine I never authorized anybody to teach that they'd get scooped up again and get another chance no no they will be resurrected yeah yeah that's the second death what's resurrection right see now they've got it haven't they 
So they, they resurrected Jesus, said, I've done everything to you I promised to do. But now you can't hold that body because you violated the uh, principles that permit that body to remain eternally yours. So in due time, we'll take it away from you and it will go back to the native elements of a resurrected planet to which it belongs. And you'll be cast out as a stripped naked intelligence with neither spirit nor body. That's the second death. The 88th section says, and you shall be cast out again unto your own place because you would not have that which you, uh, to which you could, uh, which you could have had. But once you understand the doctrine, um, several of the doctrine covenant sections begin to make a lot more sense. Let me just turn to one of them here. He says, um, and all those who are quickened by a portion of the telester glory shall then receive the same even of fullness. And they who remain after everybody else has been resurrected, shall be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they were willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. All right, now how do they return? I'm reading the 88th section, beginning in the 32nd verse. It says they're going to return again, meaning from where we all came, which is outer darkness. Listen to this. Verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law is preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by law. That which breaketh the law abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself, and willeth to abide in sin, and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law, neither by mercy, justice, nor judgment. Therefore they must remain filthy still. And then it goes over to the 50th verse, which continues talking about the same thing, in which Jesus said, in me they can exist, but he says, otherwise ye cannot abound. And those resurrected bodies of son of perdition, when Jesus said, I'm through, they will, they will, they will disorganize. Go back to native element and leave that intelligence stripped. Now the early brethren taught this very plainly, and now some of our modern scholars, uh, we've missed it, you see, we've got a missing link. And every once in a while you hear modern scholars take Joseph Smith's statement that Cain would rule over Satan after his resurrection and assume that that would go on forever. It goes on for a while. So we need the whole doctrine or we get mixed up. So as I tell my students in gospel principles, some of the brethren have much deeper insight in some scriptures than others. And what you do is keep looking for the, for the one that the Lord blessed with the deepest insight. And then square it off with the scriptures. That's how you can tell who's got the deepest insight. Because you'll find some of the brethren teaching right up here, and the others you'll find going way down. They really have it. They're bedrock. So, here's what happens in the church, and this is part of growing up in the priesthood. You must recognize this. All the brethren agree on this. Those are precepts. 100% agreement. Now, what design do they make? Have you got a circle? You got a what? A star. Got a star. Oh, we got, got a circle, got a star. Okay. You got a star? You could have a windmill. See, there are all kinds of things you can make out of this. I got one left over, so it isn't a windmill. So that's the way you do it. The moment you start conceptualizing, you try to see if you've got the big picture. And um, as I said to one of the general authorities one time, he says, you know, I don't agree with that. And I said, well, now I appreciate it. Tell me why. Well, and he told me why. And I said, did, did, you, did you know about this statement by Joseph F. Smith and this statement and that statement? 
by Brigham Young, Hebrews of Kimmel? No, he said, that, he said, it's kind of a new area, actually. I said, then when you tell me you're not agreeing with me, you're talking to me as, as a fellow student, not an apostle. Oh, yes, I'm just trying to understand it. And I'm going to look up those passages. I want to understand this better. See, now, it's important to let the brethren be students, too. You know, the brethren will stand up, and they'll give it a talk on very basic principles of the gospel. Full, 100% agreement. But you walk up to them and say, now, uh, explain to me about, um, oh, some rather obscure doctrine. What do you think about the creation story? Is the first chapter of Genesis uh, spirit creation or temple creation? Well, I sort of think it's a temple creation. Well, you know, Brother Pat said it was a spiritual creation. So does the priesthood manual. I know it did, but I, I've studied it, and I'm trying to think it through. So you've got to allow them that privilege. They're in, the, they're, that's, they're in the student stage when they're talking that way. So as I said to this gentleman, are we talking together as fellow students? Have you got access to some scriptures I don't have access to? No, he said, I really don't. So I'm just trying to understand it. Now, if you let the brethren be students with us and wait for them to speak in the name of the Lord, if you want to have it laid down, and they've been told, like Brother McConkie, I mean, after he had his, his wonderful experience here a year or so ago, and... He can tell you, in the name of the Lord, what he saw and what he was told. But if you discuss with him uh, all some of the things he's been meditating over for years, he'll give you his best thinking. And he'd, be, he'd welcome a revelation would completely change it. But sometimes our students' faith, they don't distinguish between, these, between precepts and concepts, and so they get confused. And so what I do, where the brethren were trained by Joseph Smith, I go back to them for a lot of the profound things of the gospel, and this is one of them. And Brother Witzer told me when I was a missionary, only, well, I was 18 when we had this conversation, but I went at 17, hungry for the gospel. I just knew I was so ignorant, I just had to be filled up, nothing like being filled up with an apostle. So whenever Brother Witzer would say something I, that, that was new to me, and that was most of the time, I'd say, where'd you get that? Where'd it come from? And he'd tell me where it came from. But once in a while he'd hit a doctrine like this, and he said, I won't tell you where it came from. You've got to find it. Okay, tell me where to look, and I'll look. All right, 88th section, 45th section, 29th section. So I'd read them, read them, I wouldn't find it. So I'd come back, and I'd say, it doesn't say it. he said, yes, it does. You just don't have ears to hear. You didn't read it prayerfully. I said, well, give me an idea where to concentrate prayerfully. <laughs> <laughs> All right, he'd say, uh, try 88 uh, verses 15 to 35 and see what you come up with. And, and so for I found my verse 28, and I was in. Section 29, found verse 36, I was in. Section 93, verse 30, 33, 35, I'm in. And I'd come back, and he'd say, now, you're getting close. What does the Spirit tell you about that? I said, I'm just so excited, I'm just thrilled. I'm beginning to understand some things. Fine. Make sure the Spirit confirms it so that you're sure you understand it. That the Spirit what? In the case of the Son of Perdition, all I can tell you is that all the early brethren taught it that way. And that someone who hadn't read the early brethren, apparently, got it into their books in modern times that this wasn't so. That's kind of embarrassing. So we got a little conflict temporarily. So some of us started doing some deep digging to see if we couldn't find out really what they taught and what, where it tied into the scripture. And it was loaded. So without any disrespect to those who had a contrary view, I have to say 
in out of respect for the truth and what the brethren have taught and what the scriptures taught that that's the doctrine that they teach but you'll find one or two teaching a contrary doctrine they've conceptualized it differently so I asked why and they said because Joseph Smith said that Cain would rule over Satan but you see the whole concept goes deeper I said then what is the second death they said to be cast out with that whole body yes you mean all those intelligences in that body have got to suffer just because the superintelligence made a mistake then I found out that particular brother didn't understand the doctrine of intelligences yet. Now this will happen in the gospel. Uh, if, you'll follow, if you'll follow the Spirit of the Lord and let it guide you, it will open up understanding. If you don't have understanding, you've got a mystery. And so this was the um, um, point that I, we were trying to establish in our minds at that time. I was trying to establish in my mind at that time. Uh, was whether this good brother whom I had a great respect for, one of the great scholars of the church. On this particular topic, are you and I talking now as brother students, or are you talking to me as my mentor and apostle? Because if, you, if the Lord says it's thus and so, and you're telling me for my generation that it's thus and so, I'm not even going to worry about it anymore. No, he said, that's not true. I'm just a fellow student. That taught me something about the brethren. It taught me how I would have felt in the days of Peter if I'd been a great follower of Peter. And all of a sudden, Peter comes and tells me, I, I taught a doctrine that was not correct. One of the neophyte apostles named Saul or Paul, he was correct. I was in error. Peter, how can that be? How do you know you were wrong? Lord said so. Oh, right, right. Now, does that shake my faith in Peter? No, he's going to continue teaching me the truth as he knows it. And only once in a while we'll have these points where even the president of the church will have to be straightened out on a point. So we, we, this is why we remain very humble students. And you mustn't let that shake your faith because that's the way you grow in the priesthood. Nobody's omniscient, nor is anybody infallible in this kingdom. We're all pressing forward together. And Joseph Smith said to the people, will you please let me be a human being? I'm trying to learn some things too. I make some blunders. I've made some little errors here and there. Nothing very serious. But some of you are pointing them up as though they were monumental. Will you please throw a cloak over my few weaknesses? And believe me, you'll be grateful when I throw a cloak over yours. <laughs> That's in one of his sermons. Now, I need to cover a little history. I just wanted you to have that correct, um, that correct doctrine. The, the where it was taught by Brigham it's all through the journal discourses you see but I just wanted you to get a little glimpse of it and where God says my honor is my power honor of whom honored by whom everybody thought by the gods up above no the gods give him his authority his power has to come from support beneath stake president recommends a bishop bishop is ordained set apart by the quorum of the twelve does that make him a powerful bishop make him a great bishop What's he got? Just authority. What well, gives him power? When the elders do their home teaching, primary teachers teach, and the young people come to mutual, and the Boy Scouts go up on their hikes, and all of a sudden the people pay their tithing. What have you got? Great bishop and a great ward. Where did the power come from? Those voluntarily supporting him. This is a priesthood principle. It's the way the whole universe was built. So we don't talk about it, do we? Very much. That's why it's a lost doctrine. Now, you remember that 612, 
is the fall of Nineveh. 605 is the downfall of the remnants of both. I mean, the remnants fled over here. 605 was Carchemish. The fall there. 598 is the fall of Jerusalem. Excuse me, attack on Jerusalem. It had been attacked in 606, but just for the purpose of picking up Daniel and a few things. 598, it was hit again, and this time 10,000 taken, including Ezekiel, who was then 25. That was the first year of the reign of Zedekiah. Uh, Nephi rose up, uh, Lehi rather, and tried to help out. The Lord took him off the promised land. And so in 587, Nebuchadnezzar came back and just demolished that city. 587. And carried the people who were left. Nearly all of them were killed or fled. Nearly all of them. Just a few thousand were taken over to Babylon. Uh, some 50,000 or so came back uh, many years later. So we, we imagine there are 35,000, something like that. Not very many. Out of all those vast hosts that had been here when this was a great city, they were held over here until uh, Babylon itself fell. And who knocked out Babylon? The Babylonians. Cyrus of Persia. And he came in here in the middle of the night and found that the king had been killed during the night by his own courtiers. What was the king's name? The feast of Belshazzar, a hand written on the wall that thou hast been weighed in the balance and found wanting an old Daniel trembling with age had been called into interpret and says this is the night. You will be killed and before morning the city will be taken. Well, the Cyrus, he came in, he took the city, and the very next year, 538 B.C., he sent the Jews, 50,000 of them, back to Jerusalem. They came back to Jerusalem and started to build their temple. It was a pretty slow start, but they finally finished it in 516 B.C. Be sure and take down all these numbers, they're important. 516, the temple was dedicated. Now you would have thought that the people would have immediately become a great prosperous people. They did not. 539. And 538, which is the very next year, he let the Jews go back. Isaiah had talked all about it, even named Cyrus a couple hundred years earlier, you know. It's all in the computer. All right, 516. Now, almost, um, well, 75 years later, if you put down this common date, of 450, just so you can remember. Actually, it's 458 and, and then a subsequent year. But 450 marks the return of two uh, non-prophet, non-priestly leaders that are famous in the Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah. They came back about 450. Now let me tell you the, briefly the story of, of Ezra first. Ezra was just an, uh, a scribe and a copier of the scriptures over here in Babylon. After it was conquered by the uh, Persians, he remained in Babylon. That is, he was in Babylon, born there. And um, he um, heard that the people had built the temple, but they weren't living the gospel. And he thought he'd better take some copies of the gospel over so they could read them and find out what God's commandments were. He got over there and he's horrified. They don't have one copy of God's law. They built a temple. They've married heathen women. They're raising their children like heathens. They don't know anything about the word of the Lord. So he gets them all in a big conference. And Ezra stands up and he puts some broadcasters out every so often. 
men with big voices. And he will uh, open up the scripture and say, Thus saith the Lord to all of the tribes of Israel. And he say, Thus saith the Lord to all the tribes of Israel. Thus saith the Lord to all the tribes of Israel. Thus saith the Lord to all the tribes of Israel. And somebody wave a big stick, you see. This shall be a blessing unto you if you shall keep these commandments. This shall be a blessing unto you if you keep my commandments. Uh, uh, <laughs> and describes how he did it and so he was able to read the whole law to them no copies nobody had any copies so he said we'll make copies as fast as we can but meanwhile I want to read the whole law to you so you know that what, you, what will bring you blessings and what will bring you curses and finally he said and amen meaning that's all the law there is guess what the people did they just rose up off the ground and shrieked in lamentation woe unto us God forgive us we have invited all the curses how will we escape them we've done all the things he said that would bring curses all right Ezra says take it easy now wait a minute I'll get the law out to you and uh, then live the commandments straighten up your convert your heathen wives get get this thing squared away so he's out there working hard and Nehemiah hears that Ezra's working so hard getting them to repent that the city is just nothing. They're not building their houses anymore. They're not building up the walls. They've just let the city go to pot. So Nehemiah decides he'll come over and help them become not just a, a religious people, but uh, make their land blossom again. Yeah, either convert them or leave them. Right. In other words, they're not heathens anymore if they're converted. Okay. If they remain heathens, they must abandon them. Otherwise, it'll corrupt the next generation of children. That's right. All right. Now, um, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king of Persia. And he said to the king of Persia, I, I hear that Jerusalem still has not been rebuilt after it was devastated by the Babylonians, and I would like to go over there and supervise it. Oh, the king says, that's fine, you go. And I will um, uh, give you my blessing, and we'll have the, the local... Um, um, captain in charge of the region we'll have him give you money to help build up the city and, and make it real nice and then you pray for me when you get everything over there going real good and so Nehemiah says I'll do that why was a cupbearer so important in those days yeah, he, he's, the, he's the one you trust better than anybody including one of their many wives I mean you trust your cupbearer because you see here's the ring Here's the little case that opens, you see, right there. And he says to Nehemiah, taste the wine. Delicious, delicious, my lord. Oh, what a beautiful parrot. Oh, where did this parrot come from? The king looking at the parrot. <laughs> delicious wine, sire. You see how easy it is? Yeah, taste it again. Yeah, <laughs> smart king. <laughs> okay, that's why the cupbearer was trusted above everybody else in the kingdom. He was Jewish and greatly trusted by the king. All right, he arrived over there, spent three days casing the place, kind of getting this thing set up, saw how decadent it was, and then he revealed himself and gave his credentials from the king and immediately began rebuilding. Now, he describes every gate and how much wall was built by each group of people, and today it's the same uh, walls, the same gates, the same stones, the same pillars at the foundation. So 
they were able to subsequently build those walls over and over again on exactly the same location because of the description of Nehemiah. That's how we know exactly where the old city was. Then your next date, they got the city built up pretty good. And then a prophet came. They were pretty wicked. They just really weren't making it. So in 400, 400, that's your last date. This is where the Bible closes. 400 B.C. Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, rose up. Warned the people, told them they weren't paying their tithes. Talked about the latter days, said that Elijah would come, and that's the way the Bible ends. Now, when Ezra put together all of the scriptures that he brought over for the people to read, that's your present Old Testament. That is your Old Testament. He put it together. And at the front of some of the books, or at the back of some of the books, all of a sudden in the book of Joshua, it says, and Joshua died and was buried. Well, who wrote that? Ezra. Or he'll introduce a book, and he'll say, this book came from thus and so. That's also Ezra. So the Old Testament, as you now have it, was, was uh, put forth by a Jew, a Jew, just like the Book of Mormon says. The Book of Mormon says it would come forth from a Jew. Well, it did. And his name was Ezra, and he was a scribe. He was not a prophet. Why don't we use them? Because the Lord said they were imperfect. And he said there's some truth in them, but he said they're not perfect enough. Oh, the question was, why don't we use the apocryphal books that also are known to exist? These are others that Ezra didn't include. Like you take the book of Jasher. We don't have any idea whether even one sentence in the book of Jasher is, is authorized or true. We think there are some little elements that are true, but we don't know. And it's got some stuff in it that's a real fairy tales. They were put together by some Jewish... Uh, rabbis a few centuries ago and called the book of Jasher. Well, the Bible talks about a book of Jasher, but that's not it. That is not the book of Jasher. Yeah, just as you have it. Uh -huh. Whatever you've got here, that's what Ezra had. Probably copies. Because you remember when Josiah was cleaning out the temple, he was so lucky to find one copy of the law. Boy, those things had been kicked around. Yeah. So there's some scribes they took what they had over to Babylon, and he was one of the custodians of the scriptures, and so he brought them all back again. Wasn't Joseph Smith compared to Cyrus? Let's see. Yes, I think he was on one occasion. Uh, well, Cyrus was a... Um, the Lord says he was a great instrument in a time of bloodshed and terror. He was a great instrument of um, establishing peace and prosperity among the people. Uh, he captured Babylon with practically no but bloodshed. It was later that the city was devastated. That's his history. I mean, he does not have a bad history himself as an individual. I'd have to go back and check the, the occasion, however, but that does sound familiar. Randy, you had your hand up again? Ezra? He's a scribe. A scribe is one who copies the scriptures. Well, he brought them with him, and they didn't have any scriptures, so he, he brought them from Babylon. He put them together in the form that they're now in, and that became the Jewish Old Testament. I mean, the Jews do? Yes. Nehemiah, he was Jewish. <laughs> Air pollution. Um, he was Jewish and from Persia. Um, he was over here with the king of Persia, who all dominated this territory. 
Ezra came from Babylon. It was under Persia, but he, he was in Babylon at the time as a scribe, meaning one of their learned men who copies the law and copies the scriptures for everybody. All right, now in um, the Bible closes then in 400 B.C. About 435 B.C., the Greeks were coming into their own, and Pericles was in charge of the Greeks, and they had a state of democracy, city democracy, and uh, they really had a great thing going. And so the golden age of Greece hit about uh, 450 to 430 B.C. Pericles was responsible for everything that you now find on the Acropolis. You know, you go there to see the grandeur of the Greeks. Well, that was all done in about 30 years. That's the only golden age the Greeks had. Everything else was reflected glory. The golden age of Rome really wasn't very long. And we'll look back and find the golden age of the United States, really. We, went, we rose and hit a peak. Didn't last very long. Down we started, you know. Now, each nation has a, a golden age, but it isn't a long one. So Pericles was responsible for the Parthenon and the Temple of the Wingless Victory and that, that, those monumental entrance things that we still see and admire. Parthenon doesn't have a single straight line in it because your eye curves all straight lines. And so they curved the building so that it would straighten out your eye and look straight. So all the lines are, are curved so they'll look straight. Magnificent structure. And I get people back along where they can look along the whole length of the Parthenon and see how it rises and drops off again. Magnificently engineered. Uh, so that was all done in the days of Pericles. Well, right after that, they got themselves into some uh, real serious difficulties. And along came Plato and his good teacher, um, Socrates, was forced to drink the hemlock because he'd gone on a trip. Uh, down along the Levant, ran into some of the Israelite uh, leaders and teachers, learned all about the pre-existence and all about uh, uh, the identity of God, that there wasn't a bunch of gods on Mount Olympus, etc., but what God really was. Came back and started it, teaching it to the young people of Athens, and they said, what, you, what did they say he was doing? You're corrupting the youth. And they made him drink the hemlock. Now, he was killed, or he was sentenced to death by the relatives of Plato. Plato was of the aristocratic party. And Plato could hardly recover from this. So he went down to Heliopolis and took a lot of trips around to learn all that he could. Now, Heliopolis is the present airport at Cairo. Uh, and this was one of the great ancient schools of learning. His, his relative Salon had studied down there in 600 BC. Now, he's there 400 BC, you see. He goes home and he writes up what he thinks will be a perfect society called Plato's Republic, in which he thought a few elite, highly intelligent people, supported by the army, ought to compel the stupid masses to do what's good for them. And they would leave, live perfect communism on the top level. All the women would belong to all of the men. All the men would belong to all the women. All the children that would be born would be anonymous. They wouldn't know who their parents were. They'd be raised by the state. And these would supervise the masses of the people and wouldn't have to work, they wouldn't own any property, they just lived perfect communism. That's Plato's Republic. After 40 years, he wrote a new book called The Laws, in which he tore about half of, of the Republic apart. And then his student Aristotle came along and tore the rest of it apart. So there's nothing much left of Plato. Brilliantly in error, as Aristotle says. All right, who trained Alexander the Great? Who taught Alexander the Great? Aristotle. It's, it's so good to know a little ancient history. 
Uh, he trained Ar uh, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great went out after his father and finally conquered all of the known world. Died at the age of 32 in 323 BC. Now this is an important date because his generals then took over the part of the world that they occupied at the time of Alexander's unexpected death. Who is it in Egypt? Ptolemy. Who is it in Syria? Seleucid. Uh, who is it in Greece? The one-eyed general. What was his name? Well, in any event, the Syrians then, the Seleucids, uh, began to try and dominate this territory down here. And the next date is 167 B.C. Jews gain independence from Seleucid, Greeks. S-A-L-E-U-C-I-D. Seleucid Greeks. Next date is 63 B.C. Romans. Romans come in, you see. The Romans come in and conquer Palestine. There actually were two Maccabean princes. See, the Maccabeans are the ones that gain independence for the Jewish people. And uh, by 63 B.C., a couple of them are fighting, and they go to the Roman general, whose name was Pompey, and they said, uh, will you support me? And the other one said, will you support me? He said, when I get to Jerusalem, I'll decide who'll be king. And he got down there and said, Rome will be in charge here. And so that was the end of that. Um, then Pompey uh, fled to Egypt in due process of time. Caesar chased him down there. They had been very close, and they got separated. The Ptolemy, the 14th, had him killed. Pompey was killed. So when Caesar came down there looking for his enemy, they presented him the head and signet ring. Caesar says, what do you mean attacking a Roman general? My former son-in-law. What are you doing killing him? That's terrible. Ptolemy the 14th says, then, then we're enemies. So he attacked him. And Caesar would have been killed if it hadn't have been. Who, who saved Caesar's life? The Arabs. Led by uh, their leader named Antipater. 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 And when it was battles all over, Jesus, Julius Caesar says, I sure appreciate that. Would you like anything special? Well, he says, you know, I've been paying tribute to the Jews all these years. I'd sure like to be king of the Jews. Oh, Caesar said, all right, you're king of the Jews. So that's how Antipater became king. He was poisoned two years later. And uh, his, uh, his, one, his second son in due time became the king of the Jews. And what was his name? Herod. Herod the Great. Isn't that interesting? Now, that kind of opens it up for the New Testament. Now, all of that is contained in your last chapter. Now, on Tuesday, I'm going to give you the highlights that I expect you to know on the exam concerning Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And you sort of have the historical background, that all that you'll need. And then we'll have the examination Thursday. Same time, same station. Okay, all excused.